Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. North Korea's nuclear program was Kim Jong-il's life's work. In a lot of ways, he's a sort of disappointing follow-up to his dad, who, you know, founded a country and cult of personality and made a cynical ideology called Juche that can mean whatever you want it to mean, and Kim Jong-il didn't really live up to any of that. He didn't do anything nearly as grand or impressive as Kim Il-sung did. And even today, in North Korea, he's elevated. There are statues of him. People are about him. I mean, they have to be. But he's still not on the level of his dad, except in one way. Except in getting North Korea nuclear weapons. Which is the reason why, nowadays, a lot of people are very worried about them. And really, why this podcast series is even happening. But how did this happen? How did this country, that is starving, struggling to feed its citizens, and seemingly unable to make ends meet elsewhere, get these immensely expensive and advanced weapons? Well, before we get into North Korea's nuclear program, I want to talk a little bit about a segment of its economy that I haven't mentioned yet. Now, about a third of North Korea's economy comes from normal stuff, making things. North Korea has a fair amount of mineral deposits, and mining operations are one way that, you know, the regime is able to generate revenue. So that's about one-third of the economy. Another third is foreign aid, and that was true during the Cold War from the Soviet Union and also China, but during the 1990s, at the height of the famine, it was the United States, South Korea, and Japan that provided a whole bunch of food aid to North Korea. So the countries that it detested most and had propaganda about were also the countries that were preventing a lot of people there from starving. And yeah, you did have cereal grains arriving with American, South Korean, or Japanese flags and text on them. And the official line from the government or the military was, hey, we seized this from some, you know, Japanese guys we found. Or this is tribute that we have wriggled out of the Americans. Something like that. But another third of North Korea's economy? Crime. Think of North Korea as the world's largest and most effective criminal organization. Imagine a mafia family that has its own government, its own territory, its own cult, its own army, and it makes a whole bunch of money doing mafia grand theft auto crime stuff, and then using that money to buy hyper-advanced science weapons that can blow up a city in an instant. I know this sounds weird, but think about it. Who's going to tell the North Korean regime that they can't sell heroin. No one. There is no authority out there saying you can't sell heroin or cocaine or hashish or methamphetamines. Who's going to come in and say to North Korea that they have to get rid of all of their poppy fields or shut down their industrial meth labs? Well, no one. And North Korea is entirely willing to sell these drugs on the international market to eager buyers. And honestly, 
North Korea has kind of a good reputation as a drug dealer because a lot of its product is made by a government. It's not made by, like, Jesse Pinkman faffing about in a meth lab in the back of an RV. It's made in industrial facilities, and there's oversight, and there's quality assurance, and there are standards. So, apparently, if you're into heroin, doing North Korean heroin is a pretty good option. Don't do heroin, by the way. Don't do meth. Don't do drugs. And also, stay in school. But that's not the only thing that they're engaged in, crime-wise. North Korea is also a big producer of counterfeit U.S. currency. They are famous in the counterfeit world for making super notes. These ultra-high-quality, counterfeit U.S. $100 bills that are made by the same kind of machinery that the U.S. Mint uses. And these super notes are believed to be cranked out at a facility called the Trademark Pyongyang Printing House. And there's no real idea to know how many of these super notes are out there in the world being used to buy things, being put in bank vaults, being moved across the table in Las Vegas or Atlantic City because they're so good. Like the drugs that they produce, North Korean counterfeit dollar bills are known for being high quality. Because again, oversight, routine, and quality assurance that you only get with a large organization like a government. And those are luxuries that most criminal enterprises just don't have. Also, if you are an American and you have wondered why our $100 bills get redesigned so often, North Korea is a big reason why. It's a big reason why Ben Franklin has been redesigned, moved about, and given a watermark. Because North Korea is, oh my god, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, all about the Benjamins. They also produce counterfeit cigarettes. That is, you have North Korean tobacco rolled into cigarettes, and then you slap a well-known foreign brand like Marlboro on it, and sell it as if it were Marlboro's. Apparently, counterfeit cigarettes are pretty easy to find in most parts of East Asia. And this is one of my favorite counterfeit things that they make. Fake Viagra and Cialis. North Korea is in the counterfeit boner pill business. So, if you've ever gotten one of those spammy emails that says, Hey dude, want discount mail enhancements, and if you are credulous to actually click the thing and buy it, well, you might be getting North Korean product. That's amusing, but what's not amusing is that the regime also traffics in products from endangered animals, um, especially rhino horn, and also stolen antiquities and human trafficking. Slave labor. Uh, Both the labor kind of slave labor, where they have in particular Russian and Mongolian companies that are only too happy to buy uh, North Korean slaves for use in logging agricultural and industrial work that not a lot of people are going to be there to oversee, and also selling women into sexual slavery. Apparently there is a market, especially among rural Chinese men, for exported North Korean women. And literal slave trading is probably one of North Korea's greatest human rights abuses, though by no means its only one. We'll get to more of those 
actually pretty soon in two episodes. But the point I'm trying to make here is that when you're thinking about North Korea and its nuclear program and its military, this is where the money comes from. It comes from Tony Soprano Grand Theft Auto type stuff. And it really does prioritize the military. Kim Jong-il throughout his regime, and in particular throughout the famine in the 1990s, had a policy called Songun, which basically translates to military first. In a lot of their propaganda and media, the North Korean government often said to civilians, hey, security is our priority. We are under attack on all sides by the Americans, by the Japanese, by the South Koreans, everyone. The military eats first, literally. The military gets funded first. And progress, scientific progress, national progress, even cultural progress, was really linked and intertwined in what the military could do. The regime in its propaganda made military might the yardstick and standard for basically everything. And something that goes a long way on that scale is nuclear weapons. Now, North Korea's nuclear program began in the 1950s with the help of the Soviet Union. And I don't want to give you the impression that the Soviet Union just handed North Korea nukes, because that's not what happened. No, the Soviets helped them set up a civilian nuclear program, and were very careful that it was only that, that it was just that, because the Soviet Union also did not want its satellites getting the bomb. Nuclear proliferation wasn't in their best interest. It was also not in China's best interest. So, the Soviets might have gotten the ball rolling, but they by no means gave North Korea all of the keys. They did not give them unrestricted access to how-to nuclear. Throughout the Cold War and up through the 70s and 80s, North Korea was probably in the very preliminary stages of getting nuclear weapons. However, by this point, 70s, 80s, it doesn't look like it yet. There are no real obvious signs that it's going for nukes yet. And in 1985, North Korea actually signs the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Right now, the Soviet Union still exists. North Korea is under their nuclear umbrella. North Korea has said that it's not going to try to actually do nuclear weapon stuff. Everything looks good until 1990. 1990 is when things start to get sort of weird, because there were about 70 to 80 large explosions at their Yongbon nuclear facility. Now, we don't know exactly what those were, but when you have a bunch of stuff explode at a nuclear facility, eyebrows go up. In 1992, the International Atomic Energy Agency got interested in what North Korea was doing, and North Korea, remarkably, let them in. They said to the international team from the IAEA, sure, have a look at our place at Yongman. Walk around, take a look, nothing to see here. Never mind the giant explosions from two years ago. So North Korea probably thought that it could dress things up and make everything look normal, but it didn't work. The head of the IAEA at the time, Hans Blix, noticed some inconsistencies between what North Korea said and what his inspectors actually found. And he believed that by that time, 1992, they were pursuing nuclear weapons with a vengeance. 
and we still don't know exactly where and how they got them, but in all probability, it is from a rogue Pakistani nuclear scientist, a guy called Abdul Qadir Khan, known as AQ Khan, who it seems made quite a lot of money by selling things like the high-speed centrifuges to enrich uranium, blueprints for nuclear facilities, advice, and basically anything else you would need to have a nuclear program to North Korea. A.Q. Khan is known as the father of the Pakistani bomb, and he basically took all of his work there and gave North Korea a how-to nuclear starter kit. He gave them what the Soviet Union never did. So, really, it seems to just take one renegade high-level nuclear scientist with not a lot of principles for one of the most bizarre and tyrannical regimes on Earth to get nukes. But we're still not at a full-blown nuclear North Korea yet. Though they did withdraw from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1993, then, three months later, they said, Actually, no, never mind. We're withdrawing our withdrawal. We're back in. Then, throughout the 1990s, North Korea engaged in this exhausting back and forth between the U.S., the IAEA, and other parties about its nuclear program. Uh, in 1994, the U.S. and North Korea agreed to what was known as the Agreed Framework, which basically said that North Korea would freeze its nuclear program. In exchange, they would get other forms of energy, most notably oil. So I'm oversimplifying this a lot, but the U.S. said, hey, North Korea, we will literally give you stuff if you stop the nuke thing. And at first, it looked like this worked. North Korea did agree to the framework. Also at the same time, North Korea's neighbors were making overtures to it. Uh, South Korea and Japan both had leaders that met with North Korea. Uh, the Japanese Prime Minister, Junichiro Koizumi, went to Pyongyang, and that was a big deal for a Japanese Prime Minister, and recall the historical context between Japan and Korea, to go to Pyongyang and try to actually patch things up with him. So really, there's a full-court press among several countries during the 1990s to get North Korea to denuclearize, and they don't. By the start of the 2000s, it is apparent that they have violated the agreed framework. This is the context for George W. Bush lumping them in with the axis of evil in his State of the Union in 2002. They had not acted in good faith with the U.S., South Korea, Japan, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or anyone else. Then, in 2006, North Korea stopped being coy and performed an underground nuclear test. Not a dud, not a trial run, not something that fizzled out or didn't go off, but a full-on fission explosion. A small one, it was less than a kiloton, but a nuclear explosion nonetheless. After it was apparent what they had done, this is what the North Korean regime had to say about it. They said, quote, Field of scientific research in the DPRK successfully conducted an underground nuclear test under secure conditions on October 9th, Juche 95. In North Korea, years are counted upward from Kim Il-sung's birth. Juche 95 would be 2006. At a stirring time when all the people of the country are making a great leap forward in the building of a great, prosperous, powerful socialist nation. 
It has been confirmed that there was no such danger as radioactive emission in the course of the nuclear test as was carried out under scientific consideration and careful calculation. The nuclear test was conducted with indigenous wisdom and technology 100%. So, never mind actually getting a Pakistani nuclear scientist to clue you in on stuff, but anyway... It marks an historic event as it greatly encouraged and pleased the KPA, that's Korean People's Army, and people that have wished to have powerful self-reliant defense capability. It will contribute to defending the peace and stability on the Korean peninsula and in the area around it. Unquote. Man, quoting North Korean English is difficult to do. It's like they're using Google Translate. Anyway, having nuclear explosives is only part of it. That's a big step, but in some ways it's only the beginning. You also need to have a delivery system, and you need to be able to miniaturize nuclear weapons and put them on that delivery system. Once again, when it came to getting missiles, North Korea turned to the outside world. Here's former National Security Advisor Victor Cha on how North Korea got its missiles. He says, quote, Experts believe a good part of the North's missile technology appears to be of Soviet origin, but this does not necessarily mean it all came from Moscow. A significant volume came to North Korea through the Middle East. Egypt and Syria provided Soviet-based missile technology for the North Scud missile between 1976 and 1981, long after the Soviets stopped transferring it to Pyongyang. The North Koreans then learned how to build the Scud by taking it apart piece by piece and putting it back together again. The first reverse-engineered Scud-B missile, known as the Hwasong-5, was tested successfully in April and September of 1984. Production of these missiles started shortly thereafter. Iran immediately became a customer, and they wanted a Hwasong for use against Iraq and agreed to finance part of the DPRK's production in return for scores of finished product. In 1990, the North successfully tested an upgraded version, the Hwasong-6, which was a reverse-engineered Scud-C missile with an increased range of 500 to 600 kilometers, or 310 to 373 miles. The North began full-scale production of this missile after the 1990 test. Unquote. So from there, North Korea would continue to refine and perfect its missile program. A uh, big step was in 1998 when they fired a missile over Japan. Now, this could have been interpreted as an act of war, had Japan wanted to do that, but North Korea played it off like it was a satellite launch. Now, North Korean missiles are good enough to hit most of the world, and by now, they probably have been able to miniaturize nuclear weapons and put them on missiles that can hit most of the world. So that's fun, but in the face of this, which makes meth and counterfeit cigarettes and is into human trafficking and reverse engineering missiles and then selling them to other people and, you know, also has a starving population. Why not reform? Why not change things up? Why not try something new? Well, some of that has happened, kind of. Next episode, we will look at some North Korean attempts at, quote, unquote reform as always this is a listener supported podcast thank you to everyone every single one of you who supports the podcast every month if you wish to do so go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter uh, i am on social media on twitter at joe streckert 
Also, the podcast is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Uh, go on iTunes, give us reviews, give us ratings. Those are really helpful to allow other people to find this thing. Also, I read those, and I love hearing from you guys. Once again, thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.